So I thought just quickly, um, you can probably see four names on your screen. Yeah, Captain Rob, Playa, and Toe Jam. That's it. That's it. So those are the nicknames we basically um, we use. I thought Toe Jam was an authentic Australian name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're Nico, and it's pronounced Bolas, is it? So I get it right? Yeah, B-O-L-A-S, Bolas. Okay. Which in Spanish means balls. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Serious. I grew up in a Mexican neighborhood. I learned that really early. <laughs> Welcome to the Beach and Black Podcast, an award-winning, unofficial podcast on Prince. For over 10 years, giving you Prince news, reviews, trivia and all things happening in the Prince world featuring the hosts Rob S. I think the craziest thing that's happened is when Prince invited me and Captain to meet with him in New York in 2010. Captain. Anytime Prince gets on the guitar and he starts getting up near that top fret just get ready to blow your head off. Player. Oh my god that's the Minneapolis sound right there. Toe Jam. There's just layers and layers of stuff going on in his music all the time in every speaker. Find Peach and Black on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hi, this is Eden Nelson. This is Tony Young. Hi, this is Larry Graham. This is Mr. Hayes. And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast, baby. Now over to our host, Rob S. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Peach and Black Podcast. Podcast. We are gathered here today to talk about Prince's Originals album, and we have a special guest, Nico Bolas. But before we get underway, let me introduce the panel. It is, of course, Player. The Vault is Real. Oh. <laughs> Toe Jam. Mass appeal, a little boy's smile. I can make you happy, baby, all the while. <laughs> and Captain. Player knows. Gigolos get lonely too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's me, Rob S., in the place to be, and we're about to talk to Nico. We're very excited. Nico is a producer and recording engineer who has been in the music industry since the late 70s. He's recorded a number of influential artists, including Neil Young, Herbie Hancock, Warren Zevon, and the band Kiss, just to name a few. And he's agreed to come on our show, on our podcast, to have a chat about his work on originals. We'll get the show on the road. So again, thanks for making the time to come on the show and and chat about your work on the latest originals album. We're thrilled to have you here. And we're just really looking forward to chewing the fat, as we say, and uh, having a bit of a talk about that release. And I guess generally your thoughts uh, about the music and all that sort of stuff as well. So I'll let Player open up. Cool. Uh, welcome to Peach and Black Podcast. Can we begin by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself, some of your background and some other projects that you've worked on prior to Originals? Um, shit. I don't know. I grew up in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> um, I raced a lot of motorcycles. What else do you want to know? Musically, I've been yeah, in studios for, I don't know, 40 years now. Nice. Something like that. I started in L.A., wound up in New York, and then back to L.A. with a brief... 10-minute stay in Nashville. I left screaming um, <laughs> and came back here. 
Uh, I've worked, I don't know. You know what, man? All records are the same to me. They're either good or they suck. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you just work on good ones. So like who I've worked with doesn't really matter. I've just been fortunate to work with a lot of talented people. Um, and I think it's mostly luck. And uh, I'm just grateful to be in a room with them. Mm, nice. And um, prior to the Originals Project, to what extent or level of fandom did you have for Prince? Do you have a favorite song or album or? No. Nope. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I, I had met him years ago at Sunset, okay. uh, and I knew all his engineers. Um, and I wasn't really, um, I mean, I wasn't a crazy fan. Uh, I just really respected his music. Everything I've ever heard him do, you dig it, you know. Yeah. That's about all I can tell you. I mean, it, it's, it's so, um, it's actually really educated when you learn about music, but when you hear it, it seems very simple mm -hmm. because he was so good. He just, anything he released, it felt amazing. What I learned in doing this project was how much material he actually did yeah. and some of the stuff that he didn't release and the difference. You know, there's a, there's a really high benchmark that he had that I really respect. It's incredible. Gotcha. I didn't own any Prince records. I just would hear it when I'd go to Sunset Sound and I knew, you know, Peggy and I knew David Leonard and, and Susan and Coke Johnson, too, who's a brilliant engineer for Prince. Oh, cool. Um, but he didn't, you know, none of the tracks that I just did, all the originals, was actually the original crew. It was Peggy and David Leonard and then uh, some of the stuff was cut by Susan. Coke wasn't really working for Prince till later in the 80s. Mm. Okay, so now before you give us too much information on originals, let's just make it clear that there were some sort of uh, non-disclosure agreements, but so you couldn't talk about this album, but after release date, you, you're all good. You're not talking out of school. We're good to go, right? Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to. I've been working on it for two years. Wow. Um, oh, wow. We, we started when right when the, when the assets, which is what they call all the media files, left Minneapolis, and it came to uh, Iron Mountain. Um, the guy that's running it there, uh, I knew from Capitol Studios, and he called me and, and said, would you come? Uh, I can't even tell you who the client is, but I need help figuring out how I'm going to handle all this stuff. So I went down there, and obviously I learned what it was and helped them put together a studio to both archive and you know make copies of and then be able to start doing reference mixes for the estate, uh, the family, and at the time, you know, whatever group of attorneys were handling it. And that's probably changed about six times. I don't know. It's yeah. such a, a big thing. So I put it together, and then I did some reference mixes, and then they really liked the mixes. And then I got called to come back, and then I started working for Warner Brothers, assembling this record. And it really started to take shape after the first... I don't know, 25 or 30 songs, Michael Howe came on board. Uh, Greg Parkin was the original guy at Iron Mountain who, who was the strategist behind all this and put it together and then met Troy Parker and Troy came in. And, you know, I don't know who all is running what, but Greg set it up and then Michael Howe came in as the chief archivist because he had such a, a, a long history with Prince at Warner Brothers. And he really guided the mixes and um, if anybody should be credited as producer of the mixes, it would be him just as much as me because he was in the control room every day and had very definite, clear opinions and guidance as to what the record would have been had, you know, they finished it themselves. And any question I had in terms of who was working on what 
he would have an answer and then I could call that person. Like what I did was I called Peggy and I called David and I called Susan and I said, where'd you record this? Your name is on the box. Do you remember anything about this session? What were you guys into then? What echoes were being used? You know, so I could have uh, some education because my job is to honor what they would have done had they finished it. Mm. You know, it's it's not, nobody gives a shit about Nico's interpretation of Prince. <laughs> what I wanted to do was figure out if they had had another couple hours of studio time and finished it with his vocal, what would they have done? And so that's what I did my best to do. Okay. And what's the process of what gets used or not? Is there somebody that calls those shots or do they just come to you and say, work on these, these songs? Um, well, I worked on a lot of music. And then out of that batch, there's probably ah. 60 finished things. They chose the first 12 or 15 and then there's another batch coming. Gotcha. Um, and um, the NDA was cool up until I got your email and I forwarded it to Michael Howe. Mm. Uh -huh. who works for the family. And he said, those I guys. Said, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he said, you can talk to them. It's cool. So I sent you back an email and said, sure. Beautiful. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. I don't think he knew you were Australian or he would have said no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that I was really curious to, to know what you thought about was, were you hearing the multi-tracks? I'm assuming you would have had to have been to mix the material. Yeah, what I did was I set up the protocols for the transfers, and then as everything got archived, um, I would do mixes. Um, so I had both, you know, I would say if, if something was uh, released by the time, I would have the original single and the multi-track that either it came from or the song demo that Prince gave them. Like Ma uh, Manic Monday was, a, was more of an um, acoustic country thing, actually, yeah. than, than the Bengals' interpretation. So I had all of that to go on. And Michael would always bring in um, uh, bootlegs and, you know, things that are out in the fan world that people are are listening to as guides. Right. Ah, interesting. Wow. So you're working with, you're working with Prince's, Prince's original multitracks, the released studio versions, bootlegs, <laughs> and potentially anything else. So that for every single song, that explains... Yeah, I would listen to, to get, the thing is, is, I'm really about trying to figure out where the groove is against the lyric. And that's what I learned from Peggy McCreary is what most of mixing for him was about. It wasn't really about being hi-fi or uh, sophisticated as much as can you dance and can you sing along. And I missed it. You know, when I, when I was first doing stuff, I mixed it. And, and it's funny, it made me remember back in the late 80s, one night, Coke and I were still at the studio, and I was playing him the record I was working on, and he was playing me the Prince record he was working on, both very illegally. We're just in the control room. <laughs> we were a bunch of buddies, you know. And um, I said, what'd you do all day today? And he played me that track, and then I played him the track I had cut. And he said, man, Nico, your shit sounds really expensive. And I listened to his track with Prince, and I said, man, your shit sounds really raw. How do you do that? And, and he looked at me and he goes, I don't know. How do you do your shit? Mm -hmm. And then we started trading engineer notes. But when Peggy listened to what I was doing, she said, it's a really great mix, but Prince wouldn't like it. And I, I freaked. I said, what are you talking about? We have to start over. That's, that's not, you know, mm -hmm. then I missed. And she said, well, he really just wanted to be able to dance and sing. So I pulled all the faders down and started over with that as a mindset. Wow. And 20 minutes later, we had the mix. And then I knew what to do. It gave me a platform. You know, it's, it's, it's very critical if you're producing mixing to give somebody a platform to go from. 
And then it's up to them to figure out how to carry those adjectives. But, but Peggy really was the champion for, for setting that up. And then I just mixed, had fun. Cool. Yeah, so as you're, as you're listening to all this material, what's, what was running through your mind? I mean, I know that's a very broad question, but you, you were one of the first people in the world, you know, probably aside from Michael Howe or whoever else was putting the material together or the multi-tracks and all this to sort of stuff. It, yeah. One of the first people in the world hearing this stuff. I'm, I'm wondering, as you listened, you know, what did you hear? What were your reactions, I guess? Were you surprised by anything? Were you particularly inspired by anything? I had one consistent thought every time I'd bring up a new track, and it's very unsophisticated. I would hit stop, I would look at Michael, and I'd go, this fucking guy is good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, he's unstoppable. I mean, every single track, something would blow your mind, and you would listen to an ad lib or a scat, or you'd hmm. realize that it was one pass all live mm. and it was the best thing you'd heard in six months, you know, and, and it would happen over and over and over again. Wow. And you're putting this all together. You've got Michael Howe. Obviously, you're not at Paisley Park. You're presumably at a, at a different studio somewhere. Yeah. So what kind of, this is a bit of a geeky question, but what kind of monitors were you using when mixing and mastering? Going back to that point about, you know, Prince wanted stuff raw. So I'm assuming that it's a. You're just asking stuff. this because you want to buy some new speakers and you want to know what Nick goes through. It's true, and I can't afford the good stuff. So I'm hoping you're using some cheap NSTs you don't need that good I can stuff. pick up you just, secondhand. You know what, man? Uh, my speakers are expensive, but it's all bullshit. If you like them, they're good. And that's hmm. the end of the conversation. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So I mix these just for technical people. My speakers are ATC 50s, okay. and I also used uh, Germano Aeons. Uh, Germano has a studio in New York and he has these custom little active studio monitors that are manufactured by this company called Aeon, A-E-O-N, I think. Uh, but Germano is the one you want. And okay, I use cool. those uh, at Iron Mountain and ATC 50s and that's what I mixed everything on. Um, awesome. They're probably too accurate to be fun, mm -hmm. um, but I've just mixed on the same speakers for so long, that's what I'm used to. But at Sunset and a lot of the original stuff was just big reds. You know, Altec Lansing Big Reds mm -hmm. or Yamaha mm -hmm. NS10s. Loud, raw, funky, inefficient. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, like you said earlier, you've been mixing, mastering, producing records for 40 years. In that context, with all the artists and all the material... Can you make it sound like it's not so long? <laughs> Only 40 years. <laughs> I think 40 years is young. I think 50 years is a long time. <laughs> oh, he's just, he's just uh, getting for, started. For, for, just for yeah. a minute. Yeah, you've been doing this for a minute. Um, I'm learning. How would you rate the, the quality or the condition of the material that you were given to work with on the project? Oh, it was fantastic. That's why it was easy to do. Because the engineers that did it are the real shit. There's nobody better than, than a lot of the engineers from, you know, that era. You got to remember in the late 70s, early 80s, there was maybe, you know, 50 or 100 engineers in Los Angeles. And all of them worked at one of 25 studios. So if you weren't good, you weren't working. And everybody was trained. Nobody went to a school. Everybody was interned and mentored. So you could put up you know, uh, Peggy McCreary tracks or Susan Rogers or David Leonard uh, or Coke and just put the faders up in a straight line and pretty much you'd have the balance they'd been working on for weeks. That's what they were hearing. That's what they were overdubbing to. That's what their musical decisions were based on. The mix is just finalizing what you've been working on. 
you know, if you cut to 30 years later, 40 years later, no one has to make a decision until the last minute. And they give 100 tracks to somebody like me who has to sort through it and make the elemental decisions that should have happened on the day they cut it. But back in those days, you got a drum sound, it was at the most four tracks. Mm-hmm. So your balance had to be right. Uh, you know, the bass was one track, maybe two. Maybe you had an amp and a direct. So you had to have it figured out. And the ratios and the proportions and the balance between everything, you know, you started making the record the day you started cutting. And with Prince, if you listen to what that guy's singing in between when he's singing, you'll hear him humming the horn parts or, or you know, oh, wow. talking. Just it's, it's the depth of his interpretation while he's doing the bass part is is frightening. So he was always hearing the finished record and it was recorded that way. So the the level of engineering was brilliant and it makes archival work really easy, especially if you want to remain true to where it came from. Mm. So that's incredible. So you're sitting there at the board and you're hearing all this stuff, you know, ad libitum, all these ad libs left. Oh, right. the conversation before the take, you know, the tape's rolling, people are talking. There's all kinds yeah, of yeah. stuff you can learn. Super uh, cool. Speaking about the actual tapes, what's the quality of, like, what's their condition like? I mean, some of this stuff is 30, 40 years old. Has it been preserved um, well, or is it some of it starting to deteriorate? Yeah, it's all, I think, out of 50 titles, we maybe had to bake half a dozen rolls, and it just depends on the brand of tape. But a lot of the stuff was the old Scotch 250, and that, that holds up really, really well. Mm-hmm. The Ampex, the 456 holds up really well. All of the earlier tapes hold up well. When the tape, uh, in the later years, when they started uh, changing the the formulas, you know, because it's a petroleum-based product, so it changed all the time. Some of those will get brittle, and you have to bake them before you transfer them. Or some of them get dry, and the speed will vary mm. because it's not getting held in the pinch rollers. I had a couple of those, and I would go back. When I'd start to mix it, I'd go, no, this, there, there's no way That's not right. that they worked yeah. on this. Yeah, and I would have the tape rebaked for, say, eight hours and do another transfer, and then it would hold a pitch. Ooh. So you have to pay attention, but it's certainly not as bad as the later decades okay. Interesting. in terms of archiving. Yeah. Well, I suppose in those cases as well, you've also got the other versions of the track that you can go and compare tempo and stuff to. So that's helpful. Yeah, but there's still nothing you can do. You have to work with what you have mm. and then try and fix it. Um, you know, um, and then some of them, I mean, uh, you know, I, all I had to compare to was a cassette copy of something. So yeah. I'd have to get the, try and figure out what he was trying to do from, from his demo cassette that was in his back pocket for three weeks. You know, who knows? Well, that, that's a relief because the first couple of estate releases, they had the Purple Rain um, Deluxe with a second disc of outtakes and unreleased songs um then they also had a few other songs released here and there and a lot of them sounded like they were just from cassette tape stuff and then this is the first one that they've released that actually sounds i know this is actually coming from the the original tape recordings rather than the cassette tape mixes do you like the way it sounds have you guys got the record yet yeah 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 oh cool then i'm not fired you like it (laughs) (laughs) can you give us a bit more detail on the um the control room facility at Iron Mountain? It's basically a duplicate of my studio. It's called the Surf Shack. And it's, um, I use uh, Universal Audio plugins, uh, which was great because most of the gear that they had in the control room back at Sunset was the original versions of UA. So I was able to just duplicate, you know, the availability of equipment, the the harmonizers and, and the compressors from um, 
out of that that list of plugins. I had the the Germanos and I had ATCs. Uh, I used the C24, an old digital workstation, and and uh, Pro Tools 192. Everything's transferred to 192. And to be honest, I used the Pro Tools IOs because they were the least coloring in terms of sound. Mm-hmm. It's the same converters that Capital uses for all their archival work. And I believe Warner Brothers too. I'm not sure. Cool. That was it. I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no mystery to it. It's what anybody can go get. Okay. Uh, it's just use what you have sparingly and let the music do the talking. And all the types of house there as well. Oh, everything's, yeah. It's it's like going into Fort Knox. Oh, gotcha. I mean, I, mm. I told the guy at Iron Mountain, I really think the reason I first got the job is I was the only engineer in L.A. that could pass a piss test. Because <laughs> 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 you got to have a background check. Yeah. and Because Iron Mountain is, is principally a document storage facility for government and corporations. And they just, in the last, I don't know when, how many years, started doing media. So in order to get into that building... You've got to go through background checks and have a pass and leave your phone downstairs wow. and do all kinds of crap. Now the family knows who I am and it's not as strict. But, you know, when we first started, I couldn't tell anybody that I was working on the Prince Project. And I would go in there and go into my little room and it was it was boring. It was just Excel spreadsheets and titles and barcodes and mm-hmm. archiving and then calling people up and having them come in and check it. And Michael and I would be locked in there for hours. So after all well, this what, news what? coming out of that fire in LA, what, 11 years That's ago, exactly and thinking. all these master tapes <laughs> lost, tell me they had, uh, I think, what, they didn't have a sprinkler system in that place, and they had the backups <laughs> in the same place as the originals. Tell us Iron Mountain's different. That would be universal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Iron Mountain is a little bit different. I, in Iron Mountain, I mean, you couldn't light a match without that fucking place turning into a sprinkler. Mm. <laughs> It's um, it's pretty sophisticated in what they do and their protocols and their backups and their isolation, actually, from the rest of the world. Mm. Um, it's impressive. You know, there's like, I forget what the government standard is. They they do it with a, with a rudimentary thing like three feet or 15 feet uh, from the computer to the closest internet connection or whatever it is. But, you know, if I needed to get a plug-in, I had to have two people come in my room and then go through two firewalls to go to wherever it was that I could access the plugin hmm. to put it on the computer. And then when I was completely then separated from the outside world, I could reboot to the archives. Wow. They don't mess around. They're very, very serious. Oh, that's good to know that then, you know, everything's safe in there. Oh, it is. Yeah. No, that's their job yeah. is to figure out what the worst case scenario is with the simplest mistake and make sure that can't happen. Because a, a lot of fans were worried, like as soon as they moved the stuff out of the vault at Paisley Park, all the fans were like, oh, what are you doing? But then when you look at the pictures of the actual vault there, the conditions there weren't that good either. So they're probably in a better place now. The best now. thing they could have done yeah. is move it to Iron Mountain. Because at Iron Mountain, it gets, I mean, from packaging to driving it there, to unloading it, to library filing. It's so controlled and there's so much care, you couldn't ask for anything better. I mean, you know, if you have something precious, that's how you want to do it. Oh, that's good. Nice. The the thing to remember with music is, and in most cases with every record I've ever worked on, you're so caught up in it and it's so immediate that when you're done, nobody remembers to 
put stuff away. Mm -hmm. I got a phone call two days ago from the owner of a studio here in LA who had master tapes from an artist I worked on in 1986 that had the masters in his tape vault at the studio since then. Wow. They were cleaning out that shelf and they called Warner Brothers. And since that artist wasn't on Warner Brothers anymore because it was 86, they didn't care. Wow. They didn't, they didn't want to know about it. <laughs> and they couldn't reach the artist, so they called me. That's crazy. So I said, send me the tapes, and the next time I'm at Capitol, I'll, I'll copy them and archive them, and I'll call the artist. And there's so many albums where no one knows where the first and second records are of major artists. The actual multi-tracks, no one knows where they are. Mm. They could be in the producer's basement that had a flood in Connecticut. Yeah. They could be, you know, sold on eBay for fucking answering machine tape. You have no <laughs> idea. So going back to the, the mixing work with you and Michael, because you said he was there often, was there any point in the process where you guys looked at each other and, and looked at a mix and thought, okay, we've spoken to everyone, but we actually need to add something here or we need to remove something here. We just have to make an executive decision for whatever reason, mm -hmm. not necessarily creatively, but from a technical standpoint, you know, either, you know, this tape doesn't sound the way we need it to or whatever, or was it a case of the mixes that ended up on originals, you guys were all happy with that everything was there. It was just a question of you putting your your magic on the top, you know, mixing and mastering it for release? Well, there's no magic. There's just, hopefully, my choices agree with you. And my choices come from lots of experience, and that's it. It's not, there's, there's no fairy dust. Okay. In terms of what got used, Michael was very, very in tune with the time of the recordings. In other words, if we were working on a track where the original version, when Prince wrote it, was, say, 1981, two, three, whatever, but there, were, there was an orchestra on there, but he knew because of his archival brain that the orchestra went on in 1987, mm. we wouldn't use it because it wasn't faithful to what was original. So that would be a creative choice that was made actually to protect the source from, from later work. So if there were backgrounds or parts or horns or strings um, or other guitars or anything that, that was brought to a song from a later point in time or from a different set of ideas than the original set, they weren't used. Mm. So it kept everything pure. There's two or three, you know, I mean, there's, there's never anything. I don't think that guy could sing out of tune if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was never, you know, where you had to go in and, and use what everyone considers commonplace nowadays in a studio to try and help a vocal. Uh, you didn't need it, you know? And if I did use it, I would neither confirm nor deny just out of respect to Prince. So there uh, I just go. had this horrible thought of listening to the originals cool. album and just Prince's vocal just completely auto-tuned every tune. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. You know what, man? Yeah. My first and only prayer was guide me through this so I don't fuck up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and <clears throat> trust me, I would have been hit by lightning before that happened. <laughs> well, speaking of vocals, uh, I was reading somewhere that you are known for being particularly adept at bringing out the best of the vocals in a mix. So I'm wondering, how did you approach mixing just the vocal tracks within the rest of the music on these songs? Start with them. Oh, okay. That's, the, that's what you do. Put the vocal fader up and listen to what the guy's saying. Wow. So er, you're, you're just listening to acapella for every track. Just we are, we listen are a little, to Just the a little singer. bit jealous of you at the moment. <laughs> well, you know what? A real singer 
doesn't just deliver lyrics in tune. A real singer conveys an emotion. Yep. And the secret to the emotion from anyone who uses their voice as an instrument of emotion is the way they end their phrases. They don't get lazy on notes. They don't get lazy on the end of a phrase and drop a note. They know when to breathe. They know how to hit a consonant. They know how to move an S around. They know how to make an, a vowel sing in an echo chamber. And they know how to make you believe every word they're singing. Because what they wrote meant something, and they wanted to mean something to you. And that's the difference between a vocalist and a singer. Mm. Hmm. Like we were just talking about this as we're reviewing originals, and we've always said, you know, Prince, you know, is able to bring that emotion easily, it seems to him. But on some of these tracks, because we knew that he was just doing guide vocals, it didn't seem like he was giving it, you know, 100%. But um, when he wants to, we can bring it like nobody. Oh, there's nobody better I've ever heard. I know some people that are as good, but nobody better. Mm. But, you know, in his defense, some of the vocals were just, look, here's the melody. This is what yeah, you have yeah. to sing. And he would scat it. And that's what we had to work with. But even that's a treat because on his worst day, he's better than most of the people I work with now on mm. their best days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, he was incredible. So, you know, if you're feeling that, you're probably not wrong. It probably was exactly what it was supposed to be, a guide exactly, yeah. for the artist. He never intended for us to use them. Mm. But again, you know, we can get away with it because... Like I said, on his worst day, it's still better than most people. So mm -hmm. so just going back to when you're talking about baking the tapes, do you know the actual contents of the vault, how they're going with like digitizing all that stuff? Because, you know, we've talked about this so many times. It just must be the most massive effort you could ever imagine in like getting through all of that material and digitizing it. It's just you can't even think how much stuff is in there. It's crazy. It's, um, you don't think about it. <laughs> you can't. You just go to work every day. You can't. You know, it, it's one of those jobs where every day is a day of discovery if you're a fan. Mm. But for the archivists, their art form, and it is an art form, is to not be overwhelmed and to clearly take every step planned. So when a roll, when a roll of tape or a cassette or a DAT or a multi-track is presented... They start with photographing the top, you know, photographing the track sheets. Take the reel of tape out, check it, see what kind of condition it's in. Load it on the machine, check the alignment. Do the transfer. Does it need to be baked? The transfer happens only one time because it's set up right the first time and the transfer happens flawlessly the first time. Mm. So there's never any uh, shuttling. There's never any rough care. Uh, everything is handled, you know, carefully. And then when it gets stored, it's stored tails out back in the box with all the original documents. It has a, a very organized, complex barcode that goes on the end that tells, you know, in their database, they can tell you who, what, when, where, and why, and how that piece of tape arrived or, or a piece of art or whatever it is. And then it goes back into the designated vault area for this project, and you get the next one. And, and that's how repeat. it's just... Yeah that over and over and over and over again. And the professionalism that I learned within the Iron Mountain system was was pretty amazing. And trust me, I learned a lot. I guess all you can do when you've got that much material is just keep turning up to work every day and just keep going. It's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's all there is to it. But what you really have respect for is 
the David Leonard's and the Susan Rogers and the Peggy McCreary's and yeah. the Coke Johnson's that showed up at the studio every day for the original 16 hours that it took to make those three minutes. Yeah. That's where the real respect goes because you had to maintain that caliber of recording ethos flawlessly from your first cup of coffee to setting the alarm at night. Mm. There's, there's no room for error. And Prince was a great engineer. If you see the name Jamie Starr, that's yeah. him. Yeah. If it says recorded by Jamie Starr, that's really Prince. I think Jamie was a, was a woman who helped him get started, and he just kind of adopted the name. So he knew what he was doing, and he knew what to expect, and he could record his own vocals. He would tell everybody, just set me up and leave. And he would sit there and punch in and out and, and do his own work. So, you know, that's where the real amazement is. It's not in, in opening this up and, and rediscovering. It's the people that put in the time and the patience and the empathy and the understanding for him when it was first discovered and when it, when it was first created. That's really where my awe rests. Mm. So some of the mixes that I think Michael Howe said in interviews, like the only versions that you guys could find were on cassette tapes. So how did you go about yeah. pulling up the multi-tracks and then mixing the vocal that was on the cassette tape? And how, how did you go about that? Well, there was only one where the only existing vocal was on a cassette. And Michael showed up with a bunch of software for us to try and we, we messed with it until we got it to work. And I was able to pull the vocal and the melody out of the rough. Wow. And then one word at a time, mm. I lined it up with the multi-track because the pitch would vary because the speed of a cassette is different than mm. the multi. Mm. What song was that? So if that was the most laborious. What song was that specifically? I don't remember, okay. to be quite honest. I haven't got a clue. I just remember it took all day. It might not even, even been one that made it onto originals, or it was? I don't know. Ask Michael. He knows everything. <laughs> we'll get to him next. <laughs> he does. He'll remember. Michael can tell you what we had for lunch on the third day of the fourth week. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm a pretty unsophisticated mixer, you guys. <laughs> no, no, we don't want to hear that. You're great. You did, you did, you did justice no, to right. the work. <laughs> no, it does. Yeah. I have a PhD in echo. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, my favorite track on Originals is Holly Rock. That's so yeah. funky, that track. Uh, can you give us any insight into the mixing of that track in particular? There's obviously, uh, compared to Sheila E's original version, there's obviously less percussion and more of Prince's rhythm guitar. Uh -huh. was, that, was that a case of uh, finding the tape like that? Or was it a case of, well, we'll take away Sheila's percussion because that would have been recorded later and that, that sort of thing? Exactly. That was Michael's production in... Well, when he wrote it, this stuff didn't exist. Yep. Mm. So this is what, what would he have heard to make him think this is great? So I played Sheila's version really loud and figured out where the rhythm was that was making me groove and then started shoving the faders up around Prince's vocal until I was grooving and printed that. That's as sophisticated as it gets. Cool. Mm. Again, all based on the emotion, right? If it, if it makes you feel, then done. You probably know the mix better than I do. I just know that when it was loud and it felt great, I went, there it is. Uh -huh. And we printed it. So I don't know that his rhythm guitar is louder than her version or that the, you know, I don't know. I just know that when I played her version of Holly Rock, it made me smile and it was grooving. And then I turned the speakers up and put up his vocal and started wrapping shit around it until I was grooving. And that was it. Cool. But the other thing with, with all of this material, like the old stuff from Sheila or from the Bangles or whoever it is, 
it depends on, you know, what the source is and what, I guess, whether it's a CD or a vinyl copy or a digital copy of some of that material, because a lot of that stuff, whether it's Holly Rock or whether it's Glamorous Life, you know, if you hear a, a dodgy CD pressing of that album, it might sound thin, but if yeah. you hear Glamorous Life on record, on like on LP, and you've got a <laughs> good setup, you might actually hear stuff in the mix. So that's the other thing, whereas I think with the quality of all of this material, the way it's been mixed and mastered, it's so clear. You can really pick things out in the mix that sometimes you couldn't in some of that old stuff. You know, if you think about, like I said, 80s material that was maybe transferred to digital CD back in the early shitty digital era. So I don't know how much of that you hear when you listen to some of the original oh, stuff. but Trust me, I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There is a difference, right? Oh, yeah. Of course, light years. I mean, yeah. uh, that could be a, an entire podcast unto itself, <laughs> just the philosophy of recording. But there's a reason that this was all transferred with short cables straight to the converters at 192, because it was mm. the highest resolution with the most accurate clocking I could put together the day we did it. Mm. There was no expense spared. So you're getting the closest thing to being able to mix off the multitrack with the storage and control and recallability of digital. But the philosophy about the mix, in other words, the approach to the balance and the frivolity and the fun is all very analog. Uh, and what happens a lot in the digital domain is people get so caught up in the technology that they stop listening and they start looking. You mm. know? Um, and there's a big difference between listening with your ears and listening with your heart. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what you're explaining to me is that, and well done for you to even know the difference, because that's when you listen to old analog recordings and stuff off of an LP, you know, there's mistakes all over those records. You don't hear yeah. them because they feel great. You can play a new modern digital record and there's absolutely no mistakes and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Just one thing I'll say before my next question is, like you were talking about, um, there's a difference between listening to something and looking at something. I'm glad that this release was not just total brick wall mastering, which it could have been in the current day and age. It has to be at a, at least at a certain level, but it's it could have been way worse. So I'm very happy that it wasn't just totally smashed, as a lot of well, current releases are. Yeah, you know, it's... Um You'll find that anytime you listen to a record and you're just enjoying it, it's probably not louder than anything else. It's just good. Mm. But in terms of this, Bernie Grunman masters in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. He's a mastering engineer. He makes it a master. And he's worked on so and much Prince material before, which is why I was so happy that they, they got him to do it. Yeah. He's just worked on so much material. Yeah, it doesn't... I mean, you know, Bernie Grunman's synonymous with finished records, so... You know, I tried to give everything to him as contemporary as possible without doing that because I can't stand the loudness wars. Mm. And everyone should know the loudness war is over because Andrew Sheps won. Mm. Okay? <laughs> Andrew Sheps is a brilliant engineer. He lives in London now. He's from L.A., and he won. He made the loudest record. <laughs> You'll never get louder than the Metallica record. And we're finished. He won the war. So it's over. You don't have to do it's that. It's over now. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We figured out we figured out how to parallel compress ourselves right into suck. <laughs> and um, so we don't have to do that anymore. So, mm. you know, with, with this record, if you listen to the source material, 
it's all very correct and very respectful because, you know, the further back you go in time for recording, the less headroom and the less tolerance there was with equipment. Mm -hmm. So the more accurate your engineering and the art of your engineering had to be. And again, that's why I'm saying the credit really goes to David Leonard and to Peggy and to Susan, because they were all very schooled and very trained and their habits were very protective of the music and the sound. There was nothing there. there there's no, hey, look how loud I can get mm. it. It's look how much it really sounds like Prince. Yeah. Look how this guitar sounds like the guitar. You know, it was more about reproductive accuracy and capturing feel than it was showing off volume. Nowadays, you know, I, I know engineers that, that they won't even raise a fader till they've put five plugins on it with presets and they don't even know what the instrument uh -huh. is. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you noticed most of the credit goes to Bernie Grunman. Yeah. Uh, I sent him everything as flat as I could so that there was room for him to work. And we both kind of had a collective goal to make it sound like an analog record because that's what it came from. Ah. Well, one of the unfortunate things, even in Prince's career later on, once you get into late 90s onwards, is he suffered from the same thing. You know, whoever was mastering that record, it was a different era back then it, that the loudness was were already well and underway. And, you know, a lot of his records from the 2000s and stuff, if you get the CD or digital versions, they are brick-walled and it is a much more difficult listen. But we're glad to, to know that this stuff isn't. And, and you can hear it. There's an element of dynamism to the music, which probably goes some, some way to make you feel. But as you earlier mentioned, you know, as long as you feel something, then job done. And, um, you know, before we continue, I have to say just a bit of feedback that people are loving <laughs> this music and they're loving the sound on this record, which is great. Oh, it doesn't always happen that way with legacy releases. You know, yeah. even if you look at whoever, Bowie or whoever, you know, sometimes they get it right and other times they just put all the faders up. But, um, yeah, this is not one of those examples. Well, thank you. Believe me, I really care. Um, that's all I can tell you. I am very sincere. I can't express enough the amount of humility that was slapped in my face when I started listening to what this guy did. Mm. And you either get that and you respect it or you have no business being in the room and I'm the first person to throw you out because this is not a normal human being we're talking about. This is an artist. I will wax elegant just for a moment and then I'll go back to being an actor. <laughs> <laughs> There's... <laughs> There's very few people that I put on the shelf of artist, mm. and that's not a good thing. It's a, it can be a tragic thing in a lot of cases because you're not a normal human. Normal humans don't wake up at three in the morning having to record a melody or write down a lyric or paint a picture or spew verses, you know, and normal people can set aside a creative urge or a calling in order to have a family or to uh, maintain a relationship or to have a fucking hobby or to even, mm. you know, stop and watch television. This is not one of those people. And, and I've been blessed in my life to work with people that I consider to be artists. And this is one of them. So if you can recognize that in the person, then you have no choice but to fight for that to be protected. Yeah. Or you shouldn't be in the chair. You have no business being in that control room. And I despise Ooh. people that don't give credit where credit is due or 
exploit these gifted people, these gifted humans, without truly recognizing the depth of what they're feeling and the amount of commitment that they have. I mean, you know, you can, you can have all the limos in the world. You can have as many houses as you want. You still wake up in the morning and your knees hurt mm-hmm. and you got to go to the bathroom and you got to have breakfast and you got to, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and shave your face. And it just doesn't matter how expensive that bathroom is. You got to look at yourself. And to be this talented uh, requires, it's not even a desirable commitment. And it's certainly not a commitment by choice. It's just what happens you know, and, and you either do it or you wind up dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we can go down the list of people that were really crazy artists that wound up, you know, in tragic circumstances. So I just felt after the second reel of tape went up and I started listening to what was in front of us, I realized just shut up and sit down and do the best you can because <laughs> this is different. This is not normal. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm done now. Okay. I hope that made sense. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Well, I just on that, you, you got me thinking about one follow-up question to that. When you, as an example, when you first heard something like Noon Rendezvous, Prince's version, that, that must have been, I'm imagining, a pretty magical moment. I mean, it's certainly in the Prince fan community, people have been reacting incredibly positively, positively to that. Cool. I, I don't... Um I don't really have any kind of a memory or a story for you. They're, they're all kind of like that. I just worked <laughs> on one the other day that's going to come out, you know, months from now. That was just him at a piano and it, and it brought me to my knees. It's just so tragic. It's ridiculous. And it was an outtake. Oh, wow. it's, not, it's not even the one he used. <laughs> well, we can't, we can't wait for that. Yeah, it'll blow your mind, man. It's, you know, you know who you should interview really is Peggy McCreary. She knew Prince right in the early days when he was really... Yeah. Figuring mm. out who he was. Have you guys talked to her yet? No, but it's no, she's on, on the list. <laughs> There's so many people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she's really heavy. Uh. I mean, she's a lightweight girl and she has a great figure, but she's <laughs> really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we noticed on not all of the tracks, but a, a few of these tracks, is a fair amount of reverb on Prince's vocal. Now, was that something that was on the original versions or was that something that might have had to have been done to maybe cover some imperfections or anything? No, it was just there because creatively it felt right. Ah. Yeah, believe me, except that I don't think it would be as much fun to listen to. You could mix these vocals bone dry and they would still blow your mind. Every choice was made just to make the version fun. Okay, yeah. My next question is, um, we did a fan survey where people who logged in did the survey and voted for their favorite tracks. You know what, man? I don't even... I mean, unfortunately, I don't even know which tunes are on the record. (laughs) I just mixed a whole Uh, bunch of tunes and then they put it together. And somebody sent me a link that said Originals is out and now you can do an interview. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that people like it. I'm terrified that they won't because I have so much respect for what it is. You know, my only job is to make sure that people can listen to him with fresh ears and marvel the way I did. That's my only purpose. But as to what they choose and what they released and what's on the record and what the best one is and all that, I don't have one. I don't really know. In some ways, I'm spoiled rotten because I just listen to all of it. Yeah. And it's all one thing to me. So I don't, I, I, I wish I had something that was a little bit more cachet, but I, I don't. 
and I'd be disingenuous if I was telling you otherwise. Yeah, no, we definitely appreciate that. I'm, I'm wondering when you listen to all this stuff, some of it will probably never come out or may, may take a while to come out. Did it change your perception of the artist? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it shut me the fuck up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> oh, so, so what was your opinion pre-originals on Prince? <laughs> that guy with the heels and the makeup. <laughs> you know, it was, it was much different. I have to be honest that my, my musical appreciation of him was always somewhat awestruck because he was so prolific. And everyone I knew that worked with him was blown away by him. But I was very protective of my peers because of the amount of hours that they would have to work. And mm. it was just sometimes it was unconscionable days and days and days and days without a break and without concern for family or, or personal lives. So, you know, being, being another in, in a long line of engineers, I would, you know, be protective of my friends. But on the same token, I'd put in 100 hours a week working for some of my clients because I was that passionate about what I was doing. And so was David, and so was Peggy, and so was Susan, and so was Coke, until they couldn't. And there comes a point when you work with an artist that's this prolific where you can't, because I am not as gifted as he is, and Peggy is not as gifted as he is. You know, we're not. We do have to sleep. We do mm -hmm. need to eat food. We do need to go see our families. It's not our face on the cover, and it's not our hearts that we're singing. And so that's what I, my opinion was based on, was mostly um, a protective reaction to my friends that were in the studio, which was right across the hall from where I was. So my early opinions were a bit prejudiced in that I was protective. Mm. But like I told you, when, by the time I put up the second fader, the second track, I shut the fuck up mm. because this guy's not normal. And no wonder he was so driven. No wonder he did what he did because it just, you couldn't, it was like a volcano. You don't stop him. Yeah. You know, good luck. I'll hold your coat. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't going to happen. So, you know, it, with that, I came full circle and it was protective of our artist, Prince. And that's when I took on the very sincere you know, oath to myself. Uh, I know it sounds corny, so I hate telling people, but I promised myself I would do the best for him. That was my only goal. Yeah. I don't know anything about the Prince fan clubs. I didn't know anything about the bootleg groups or anything. My only desire was to try and be as honest as I could be in what I was doing so that when we were done, it was what I believed was mm. the, the most sincere representation of what might have happened if he were still here. In a way, that's probably a good thing that you weren't into what yeah. the fans were saying and stuff because then it's not, you know, really objective if you could be influenced by, you know, people are saying this or they're listening to this bootleg version and I'll try and do it like this. So it's probably better that you weren't too involved in that way at all. I can't, I, you, first of all, it doesn't work. You know, like there's, there's a mix that, that uh, Tony Maserati did um, we both mix the same title and I like my mix and he loves his mix and I have nothing but good things to say about Tony. But if you want it to sound like Tony, call Tony. Mm. I'm not going to sound like him. He's not going to sound like me and neither of us really wants to. Um, it's impossible. So, you know, I, the only luxury for me was I didn't, I didn't have a circle of people telling me not to screw up because I didn't know any of the, the rabidity of, of 
the fans as I do mm-hmm. now. I mean, people are really dedicated Prince fans. And God, I hope they like what we did because my intentions, trust me, are only for them to play it and have fun. Mm-hmm. Not to analyze it, not to think about it, just to really listen to this guy who's a genius and have a really good time for three and a half minutes because that's all my job is, is to bring that home. If I did that, then then I'm yeah. happy. Well, one of the, probably one of the Prince fans, you know, as a group, probably one of our worst fears, I guess, is that the estate ever goes down the Michael Jackson route and starts getting in, you know, a singer just to finish off a few lines or things like that. But so far, as far as we know, it's been kept as faithful to the originals as possible, which is something I think most people are happy about. I I wouldn't worry mm. <laughs> because the, the one time that the that the that the estate, i.e. the the family, the heirs, were at Iron Mountain to see where it was happening, their only questions were really smart ones, and they just cared about the care and handling. I didn't, you know, I, I've never been privy to any of the conference calls, so I don't know how the business happens, but I know that Michael Howe would listen to something and if something wasn't complete then it just wasn't complete Mm. so it's not complete enough to put out Mm. um and there's there's an immense amount of respect for the wishes of the guy who did this that's all i can promise you at least from my end and the people that i work with okay now you you mentioned before about you worked on 50 something tracks so is that more along the lines of original stuff? Because we know people are talking about this, this like the deluxe version of 9 to 99. Can you tell us about future things that might be coming out? I, I don't know what they're going to do. I just know that I worked on a large body of, of music and they're pulling from that. And just last week they sent me another song. So, you know, um, as they go through the archives and they find things, However, it filters down, it gets to Michael, and he calls me up and says, I want this, this, and this. I'll be at your studio on Tuesday, and I'll have it ready, and, you know, we go. What they're going to release and how they package it and what they're offering and when mm. is is above my pay grade. I don't know. Is it a case of uh, all these things that you're working on that end up on the album? Is there things that you worked on that you, you think to yourself, oh, man, I really wish that was on here, or... Or is it just everything just blows your mind kind of thing? It's eventually I hope you hear all of it. Right. Because gotcha. if you, because I think anyone that likes music should eventually hear all of this because it's all amazing. And it's not all one kind of music. You can't, one thing I can promise you is that, that Prince didn't have a sound other than fun. Yeah. You know, uh, depending on what year you're listening to, you know, maybe he got a new guitar for Christmas, and so he used that guitar for the next four months. So everything's got this weird guitar sound. But out of that guitar, it inspired this group of songs. And then somebody gave him a bongo, and he got a new percussion guitar. <laughs> I don't know. You yeah, know, I mean, the guy, could make, the guy could make fun music out of anything. So that's the only thing that happens. There's no, uh, it's not like he only wrote classical, you know, or there's certain artists where they do one thing and then they do that for 10 years and then it's over. If he was around today, he'd be using the latest in whatever's available and making it musical, you know, making it say something. 
And, and, you know, getting back to your statement about, you know, the, the late 90s and the early aughts or whatever sounding hard, a lot of that mm. really isn't the artist's fault Yeah. when you, the music machine that you're now part of gets large and unwieldy. Decisions happen and releases happen that you just don't have enough time to bird dog. Mm. Um, so all you can do as an artist is make sure that for as long as you're holding it, it's true. And then hope to God it stays that way. Mm. <laughs> and to your point, like for me as a fan, often with those albums that you just mentioned, you know, in, from that period, the noughties or whatever, whatever, however we refer to them, often I'll pick up the, the vinyl version if it exists. I'm not technical enough. Maybe you can shine a light on this, but I think there's got to be something about the way that the vinyls are pressed or, or mastered, maybe something to do with the headroom, but it doesn't allow the loudness war to be as terrible. Yeah, even if they're cut from like the digital Master, yeah. masters, maybe. Uh, yeah. Vinyl just sounds better. Because I always seem to pick those up. They're not as, well, they're not as, I don't know, they just don't feel as, as compressed or mushed up. I don't know what it is. There are several things that happen. Mechanically, first of all, the bottom end monos, the further in frequency down you go. Because in order to get a cutter head to cut, you have to get the low frequency stuff more and more centered. So that's one of the natures of vinyl that's musically pleasing, is that it, it starts to get more and more in the middle as you go down ah. in frequency. So it's punchier. The top end is not as brittle because even though it's coming from a digital source, you're cutting on vinyl and what happens is it rounds out the edges. It's more like an infinite sampling. And the EQ going to the cutter head is not as brittle, I guess is the best word or descriptive quality as discrete digital would be. And when it's cut from a digital master, it doesn't mean it's the same thing that's on your CD. It just means that it was mixed to a digital machine, but what they press to, to 44.1 could go through more converters or more conversion okay. or whatever. For the vinyl, yeah. Whereas the so guy you never know. You could have good digital copies and bad. Oh, presents. absolutely. Sure. I mean, everything you're listening to on this record on originals is digital. You know, the mixes were done in the box solely and sent to Bernie Grunman. They never went, once they were digital, once I transferred the multi-tracks, they never left a computer. Hmm. There was no analog mm. submixing or breaking it out into a, you know, a console or any of that hoopla. Cool. Well, I can't wait to get my vinyl copy, which I've pre-ordered, so I'll, I'll compare the yeah, sound Yeah, Bernie that. probably did an amazing job. It'll blow your mind. I'm sure it's great. Yeah. I think as much as, as, much as all those things are true about the vinyl... I still think there's some percentage of it which is the placebo effect of people just think vinyl sounds better. Because Rob's well, the vinyl it, guy. He's always saying the vinyl's better. But even if he was listening to a, like a bad digital copy, if he heard it on vinyl, he'd be like, oh, it sounds so much better than the CD. <laughs> well, yeah. When you see that yeah. thing spinning around and you turn the lights yeah. down, it makes a difference. Yeah. It depends on how old the mushrooms were, yeah. <laughs> whether or not you... <laughs> it's really, there's so many other facets. Yeah. No, one thing that people don't really, really that is an important component is surface noise. Um, crackle. Tape hiss and surface noise. Well, not so much the crackle, but just vinyl. You mm. know, you're constantly moving a polymer across this moving coil. And it's like this blanket, this warm feeling yeah. against your body. There's always something there. Uh, there's no digital black in analog. 
you know? Yeah, um, there's nothing. And, and that's a big component of it. I mean, even if you got yeah. rid of all the snaps and the crackles and the pops, you know, when you drop a needle onto a groove, you hear that, yep. that tone. That stays through all the music. Mm. It's always there. There's all kinds yeah, of little things that happen psychoacoustically that are really important that we equate to good. Yeah. And just for the record, I know Captain keeps saying, uh, I say it's better. I just often prefer it. It may not even be better. It might even have lower dynamic range. I don't know. but It does. Um, yeah. But it just, if, again, to your point, I love this concept of feel and vibe. Maybe it's a topic for another podcast, but yeah, if you feel it, that's it. Like that's what You're we're done. here for. Go right? home. You're finished. That's the hardest thing. And that's the biggest, it's certainly a big takeaway from working on this project, but it's a takeaway that I get more often than not in the studio. Sometimes the run through is the take. And then people record the song seven more times or 20 times after mm. it because they got scared that it felt so good. <laughs> and the job of a producer is to never let them not go home without hearing the run through one more time because that's when you know the inspiration happens and it doesn't happen every time you play it and with albums by tightening up the dynamic range and kind of containing everything more of a performance happens in your audible space you know sometimes there is a thing as too much dynamic range so that when things are quiet they're too quiet and when things are loud they're too loud so you like having things in a zone, but that's not to say that you want it compressed. There's mm. a difference. Okay. Um, and a lot of that beauty and musicality of, of arrangement just tends to happen better on analog, and on vinyl anyways. I think cool. a lot of it has to do with the transformers and the cutter head and the, the subtle compression of the electronics myself. But. Mm. Okay. It's all got some part to play. Yeah. You add it all up, you dig it. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on you were on another podcast a little while ago. I think it was called Working Class Audio. This might be a couple of years back. And I listened to that before our show. And I remember you saying something like, you know, every person's taste influence the way something is mixed. So in other words, if you're a mix engineer, that you bring to the table a part of you and that what you choose comes from you. So, you know, the summary of all the choices is what's in the mix, I think you said. So in saying that, generally, out of interest, you know, what would you say your taste is when it comes to mixing slash when it comes to music? Turn it up loud and groove. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> I think by now that's pretty much clear. <laughs> that's about all I can tell you. <laughs> it's refreshing to hear because often, you know, people, the answer to something like that gets long-winded and, and convoluted at times, but yeah. that's really all, that's all that what counts, it is. right? And especially with an artist like Prince... It's, it's so danceable, it's so funky that that's, it's almost like a perfect mix. Pretty much my last question is you've worked on, from your credits, and there's many, many pages of those on your, on your website, nix.com, you've worked on legacy material before. So a couple of projects that I'm thinking of are that remix, Miles Davis project, Evolution of a Groove. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was a similar one, Sly and the Family Stone remix project, different strokes for different folks. I know they are very different to this original's task, but how was this task similar or different to those? This one was different in that I had complete freedom. Um, ah. And with it came complete terror. <laughs> 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 with um, Sly, uh, when we did that project, Steve Jordan produced it. Okay. So I was very much engineering his production. 
uh, and he's an excellent producer of the engineering. He knows what he wants, and he has an arsenal of adjectives, and your job is to figure out mechanically how to get what he's explaining. You know, if he, like one of his adjectives, I want the vocal to sound like it's in a cotton tent. I have tried to get the sound of a cotton tent for Steve Jordan for 30 years. Mm. You know, and there's all kinds of different ways, you know, because I know what it sounds like to, you know, in a pop tent when you're a kid, there's a certain denseness to the sound. Yeah. But try and get that in a control room. Mm. What does that mean to you? You know, so there's that kind of production in the Sly Stone record. And when we did the Miles Davis stuff, that was all Vince Wilbur producing, who is Miles's nephew. And Vince is very, very loyal to and raised on uh, the purism that was his uncle. Mm. So anything that we brought to the control room, to the best of my knowledge, had to come with that attitude, even if it was new. You know, you could bring, I mean, no idea was not accepted because it wasn't, you know, made in 1942, but it had to come from pure feel, not mm. from trickery. Yeah. Whereas with the originals record, it was, all right, Neeks, we have to do all this music, start. <laughs> and so I did, and then I just kept getting reports back saying, this is great, here's another one. They love it, let's do this. These, I think, need to be a little bit more toned down. I would go back in and, and, and reshape or set my head to a different place. Like when Peggy listened to, to the mixes that I played for her, I redid them because of her... You know, she had cut the tracks and she knew what the intent was. Mm. And, and I didn't do it right. So I had to do it right. But the important thing is to always ask and never assume you know and just try and do a good job. Because in the end, it doesn't matter who thought of the idea. It matters if the idea worked. Mm -hmm. hmm. And I know that you've said uh, in the past that you don't necessarily listen to the work that you do. So whether it's the stuff you've done with Neil or and all the acts you've you've worked with so outside of that what kind of stuff are you into and i i know this is what it's one of those questions you ask someone what kind of music they like and it's impossible mm -hmm. to answer but have you been playing something recently that you're really um fond of yeah if i'm not working on music i listen to hawaiianrainbow.com Ooh, i'll check that out <laughs> sounds interesting <laughs> i'm gonna check that out to see if that's if that <laughs> If that's real or if that's going to be some kind of website I'm going to have to clear my cookies from. No, no, it's true. It's great. There's this, this crazy guy that only plays music recorded in the Hawaiian Islands. It's all slack key guitar, Ooh, only nice. Hawaiian. There's no Tahitian. There's no Filipino music. There's nothing but Hawaiian. Ooh, and it's okay. all open tuning and it's all beautiful and it all sounds good except for the chants. Sometimes they get a little irritating. Mm, but Hawaiian Rainbow. Awesome. HawaiianRainbow.com. That's the only only thing I listen to. I'll check that out. That or, okay. you know, sometimes I listen to Byzantine music uh, when I, you know, ah. wax poetic about my Greek upbringing. Uh. But that's about it. I don't, um, you know, I'm like anybody else. I, I listen to music 12 hours a day when I get out of here. Yeah. It, Give your ears uh, a rest. <laughs> it's, yeah, you just want, you know, if you're going to listen to something, it needs to be special. 
Otherwise, yeah. you just go into work mode. I find the same because um, I'm a music teacher and I play in bands and things. And people always ask me, oh, what, what songs are you listening to? What's your favorite artist at the moment? And it's like, it's really hard because you spend all day doing music. And then you get home, you're like, I just want to, I just want silence. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the biggest thing. And, the, you know, I live with a singer, so it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> She's always singing something and I'm just staring at my oatmeal bowl going, oh. Here we go. <laughs> this song again. <laughs> <laughs> no, fortunately, she's a really good singer and she doesn't have a bad vibrato, so it's actually okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's got someone to record her now. What and do mix you, oh, please, <laughs> perish the thought. Don't even threaten me with that. <laughs> no. What instrument do you play? I'm uh, mainly a brass player. You're a brass player? Oh, cool. yeah, Far mainly. I did a couple records. Um, I did a, a bunch of brass stuff. Her, uh, Herb Alpert hit me to a lot of stuff with Shorty Rogers Ooh. and Stan Getz. I saw somewhere recently that I got to work with them. Herb Alpert was one of the, like, he's in like the top five or something of all time selling artists. And I was like, wow. Probably, yeah. yeah. Huge. Do you want a brass? Yeah. Mm. He's also the nicest guy in the world. Okay. Mm. You could meet him at the grocery store and he wouldn't know he's Herb Alpert and he'd help you change your tire. He's a sweetheart. Wow. <laughs> I've just got pretty much my last question is just, with some of the tracks you worked on for originals, uh, there's a couple of tracks which, when we listen to them, I'm like, I know this first. This is a fade. This is faded like halfway through the track. Do you have any memories of? Was there like tape damage, or was there any particular? I think I'm just trying to think. There was the glamorous life, and I think that the gigolos get lonely too. They're literally half the length of like the bootleg circulating versions. I'm wondering if were there any? Do you remember any reasons why there were f- some fades or that done? Or Michael Howe just said this is the version we're we're putting out. Do you remember any of that stuff? It, if anything faded, it was to follow whatever Prince's last version was that he approved. In other words, if he made the record and and he produced it, where he faded it is where we faded it. Oh, okay. Um, there's some stuff that may come out later where I mixed, there's, you know, 12 minutes of music, mm. but the single that you and I both know is two minutes and 50 seconds. Yeah. But yeah. what you don't know is that at two minutes, it cuts to the last 50 seconds of a 12 minute piece of music. Yeah. Yeah. And in the middle yeah, yeah. is the most amazing freeform jazz, crazy, you know, just all kinds of experimental stuff. And then it came back to the groove. That's the single. And so they cut the top and bottom and put it together and made a single and, you know, released that. And it went out and sold a bunch of copies and paid for more studio time. But, you know, musically, there's so much more. There was no fade or no ending uh, with a random choice. Everything was based on the last clear, defined music choice from him. Okay, then. Cool. Well, my last one for you today is on a little bit of a lighter note. From what I understand, you're a fan of racing. I think you said you you race motorbikes and and maybe um, maintain them and all that sort of stuff. Having said that, did you ever look into Prince's motorbike? You know the one that's on the Purple Rain album cover and the and the Purple Rain movie. Have you, no. you you know the one I'm talking? I know okay. the bike, but it's some weird little V Honda or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little yeah. little's probably right too, but. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really get involved in that. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. <laughs> but I do want to do I do want to do Phillip Island. I'm coming over there someday to do a uh, a track day at Phillip uh, Island. Uh, cool. down in Victoria. Last time yeah. I was over with you guys, I was um I did a record in Melbourne and then when I got done, I could either do four track days at Phillip Island or I did a week of diving up in um 
whatchamacallit, in Cairns. Cairns, yeah. Cairns, yeah. yeah. Cairns, yeah. yeah, Cairns, yeah. Cairns, you know, yeah. where all the, the big... Barrier Reef, yeah. Yes. 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 So I went up there instead, and I went diving. So I never got to Phillip Island, but I will. Next time. Awesome, very good. Well, I think we've pretty much come to the end of it, guys. Toe Player, if you guys got any last, last ones? That's all, That's all good. Thank you for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you all very much. I'm, I'm actually quite honored to be on this. I know you guys, you guys know this cat more than I do, so I'm thrilled that you <laughs> even listen to the record and will still talk to me. <laughs> well, you're, you, you say you're honored. We're honored to have you here. It's, oh. um, it's illuminating to get, to get your thoughts and um, not only that, that you've worked on this particular stuff, but with your history as well. It just gives us a really good idea as to what you know, happens man, behind the curtain. Be, I'll be really honest with you. I'd lie if I told you I was anything more than the luckiest guy in the world. I just, I keep showing up and they keep letting me play in a control room. Mm -hmm. And I've been so blessed with the people that I get to work with. And, you know, I used to hear old cats say that. And I used to think, oh, right. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I'm in my 60s and I really feel that way. You know, this is, there's just nothing more fun than music. And, and to get to That's be a, a part of it in any any faction is uh, a real gift and and we're really lucky so thanks thanks all four of you oh. awesome well thank you and one final note to all of our listeners you can go to i think it is neeks.com n-e-e-k-s.com and check out nico's website and you can also find a list of a very long list of all sorts of credits and, and variety of genres, variety of different artists. The cool thing about, you know, you, and you're right, we are four hardcore Prince fans from Australia, but now we've become aware of your work. And I have to say, for me, when I was looking through those credits, I'm thinking, man, I need to, I need to start listening to some of these guys again and for many of the artists for the first time. So it's going to be cool after hearing your work on Originals to, to listen to some of this other stuff. So um, just thought I'd throw that in there as well. Sure, man. You've, you've given me more music to listen to. So cool. There you go. Well, I hope you dig it. Yeah. yeah awesome. Great. Thank you. All right, guys. I'll see you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to another classic Peach and Black podcast. Catch all our episodes at podbean.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Mixcloud, and all good podcast directories. Search for Peach and Black Podcasts. You can continue the Peach and Black experience online. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The Peach and Black Podcast is written and produced by Rob S., Player, Toejam, and Captain. Original theme music by Toejam. Audio production and additional audio editing by Captain at Bunky Temple Studios. Episode artwork by Reverend. Share our podcast with your friends and Prince fans. If you love our show, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can contact the Peach and Black Podcast by email at peachandblackpodcastofficial at gmail.com. 